0: Coming up on Eating Matters, I'll be speaking with Wen Jay Ying, founder of Local Roots NYC, about the Good Festival, which took place this past weekend. Stay tuned.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing, taking place on Saturday, June 18th at Nettle Meadow Farm. For more information, visit That's Nettle Meadow Cheese and That's N E T T L E, Meadow Cheese and
2: Hi, this is Katie Kiefer from What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live
3: from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
0: And welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liut, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. If you work in the world of food, be it at a startup, nonprofit, or in a government role, and are based in New York City, you are well aware that we're coming off of conference season. Uh, Indeed, there have been many great and inspiring gatherings in the past few months, and today we're going to feature one of them, the Good Festival, which took place this past weekend. But before we delve into the conference recap, which we'll be talking all about today, I want to first briefly discuss some of the biggest food policy stories from the past week, and there has been, if you guys follow this, a lot of action happening First up, we're going to dive right in. Uh, There was a new study published in JAMA Pediatrics that found that drinking diet soda and other artificially sweetened beverages while pregnant may increase the likelihood of childhood obesity. The study followed over 3,000 women and found that after a year, children whose mothers drank artificially sweetened beverages were twice as likely to be overweight, whereas the researchers could not find any link between consumption of high-calorie sweetened drinks during pregnancy and childhood obesity. I have a sneaking suspicion that we're going to start seeing more and more studies about the negative health effects of uh, artificially sweetened beverages. But that's just my totally unscientific opinion. We shall see. Next up, the USDA, um, the public commenting period for the USDA's proposal to mandate SNAP retailers provide a greater variety of healthier food, which was released in, in February, uh, officially closes today. The USDA's proposal calls for an increase in the current requirement Um, for stocking foods, uh, if you are a snap retailer. So they, they now want to stock seven varieties of foods, uh, which is up from three in each of the four staple food categories. It's a little confusing. Um, these four staple food categories are dairy, produce, spreads, and cereals, and then proteins, which are meat considered meats, poultry, and fish. Um, in addition, stores would also have to carry perishable foods in three of these categories instead of two, which is the current uh, mandate. And then finally, the rule also includes a provision that would uh, make a store an eligible to accept SNAP if that store gets 15% or more um, in t- total sales from foods that are cooked or heated on site. Critics of this provision um, say it could reduce the number of stores able to accept SNAP, therefore making food access more difficult for some. Uh, the USDA spokesperson, however, defended his proposal, saying that, quote, if stores are getting the benefit of SNAP purchase, we should make sure participants have the option of healthier foods and prevent restaurants from participating in SNAP. Moving on, Mickey D's, succumbing to pressure and finally entering the conversation on nutrition in 2016, has ended their controversial nutrition programming in schools. What was that controversial program, you may wonder? Oh, it was a documentary called 540 Meals, Choices Make the Difference. Which they were pushing in schools under the guise of nutrition education. It featured John Cisna, a science teacher who lost 60 pounds by eating nothing but, you guessed it, McDonald's for six months. Critics such as parents and health experts pushed back against the fast food marketing by pretty much saying, I don't think we should encourage our kids to eat more fast food, especially during a time of rising child obesity rates. And lastly, the Environmental Working Group, which advocates for overhauling and reducing farm subsidies, just released an analysis of the state of the farm economy. EWG suggests that while prices for corn and soybeans are dropping, they are in fact returning to more normal le- levels, similar to those in the mid 2000s. In summary, the Environmental Working Group says the farm economy is not in crisis mode as much as the farm subsidy lo- lobby wants us to believe. This is important for a couple of reasons. First, it um, the report highlights our subsidy system disproportionately helping large-scale farmers, which only represent about 10% of all farms. Um, and it and it helps them by keeping things like corn and wheat cheap and vegetables more expensive. Um, secondly, it kind of brings us back to the conversation we had last week regarding farmer livelihoods and incomes and helps us understand how policy can improve the, the income, working conditions, and lives of farmers. And that wraps it up for our news segment today. Be sure to uh, message or tweet us at Eat Matters HRN if you would like us to include a particular policy update or if you have thoughts on the ones that we discussed today. Okay. Now I want to turn my attention to the topic at hand, coverage of the Good Festival, which took place at Three's Brewing in Gowanus, Brooklyn, this past weekend. The conference was started by my guest today, wen Jay Ying, who is the founder and director of Local Roots New York City. Uh, Most notably, I think most importantly, she's been given the uh, informal title of Alpha Female in
4: Agriculture by... Quote a farmer, <laughs> uh, more. I mean, more specifically, an entomologist. Oh, which is even better. Yeah, he actually studies um, insects and pests um, that affect farming and orchards. It's a, it's a great title. I mm-hmm. am. I am a little bit jealous. <laughs> you know what? I was going to get some sweatshirts made, and you should have one. I would love one. I was, I'm going to kick you up on that. I was actually plotting like, who else do I know that are super strong females in food? Me. You're one of them. Oh,
0: thank you. <laughs> I liked how I just volunteered myself for that
4: <laughs> designation. But um
0: uh okay, anyway, so I do you wanna tell us a little bit, Wenjay, welcome to the show. Sorry, thank I was just you. so excited by that um title that I had to shout that out first. <laughs> Thanks. Before welcoming you. Um could you do you wanna tell us a little bit about uh local roots in New York City before we get into uh the, t- the conference?
4: Sure. Uh, So, Local Roots NYC um, has been around for five years, and we build a vibrant community around local food through a network of a full diet CSA, and we have pickup locations throughout Brooklyn and Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Um, We have essentially reimagined the traditional CSA, and have created a farm-to-table connection that better serves farmers and New Yorkers, um, offering a one-stop shop for all your grocery needs from local producers, and all of our pickup locations are at neighborhood bars and cafes. Wow, that's awesome. What do you
0: mean by, um, how have you reimagined the traditional CSA?
4: Um, So we are the only full diet CSA in New York City, from which I know, which means that we have not just vegetables, which Mm -hmm. are mostly CSAs only have. Um, We have your pasta, meat, fish, granola, chocolate. Um, cheese, milk, kind of everything you'd want in your grocery needs. Right, um, They're all from local producers. And instead of the traditional 24-week CSA, we have three 12-week seasons. That way, if you travel during the summertime, which most New Yorkers do, mm-hmm. um, you can still come back in the fall to sign up for your CSA. Um, and also... If um, well, one we don't have volunteer requirements. Also, mm-hmm. um, and also, if you are traveling just for one or two weeks, um, you can pay a small service fee, and we will re- we will refund you that week that you missed. So, it's really yeah. adding a convenience to the consumer, but at the same time, we have a really tight family of farmers we work with. So, we are also providing great support to our, our farmers. Awesome. And so, you started this conference about
0: five years ago. You put it on as Local Roots New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, what was your vision for the conference? Like, you know, when you started, why did you decide to create this event?
4: So um, five years ago, this actually was not a conference. It was a music and food festival. Ah. Um, So we had local bands playing and cooking demos between the bands performing. And that kind of came from um, before I started my own business, I was in a lot of bands. Mm -hmm. And I would put shows together. And I really wanted to bring those two communities, like my two passions, together. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, isn't it really fun to me probably be drunk and listen to a band (laughs) and also learn how to make your own like mozzarella at home um so that was always a really fun thing to do and then um you know the deeper involved I get with the work I do and um you know the more I'm learning and the more I'm I'm understanding what really inspires me and what drives me and I really wanted to have a place to share that knowledge that I've gained in the past couple of years of running my own business, connecting farmers and New Yorkers. Oh, it's awesome!
0: Um, so, what for 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 so that the conference? You kind of talked a little bit about how you've evolved from five years ago. This year, there was, it was not a music festival, but um, you had a lot of other awesome things going on, and you know, kind of ran the gamut,
4: right, in terms of the programming. Um, what were your goals for the day? Uh, yeah. Um, so three things that inspired me for the conference was one, I wanted to bring people together so that our individual ideas can be part of a movement and we can empower each other to discover what the next stage of our local food system could be. Two um was to elevate our knowledge of what it really means to purchase farm to table. And um I also wanted to pass the mic to farmers so that we could connect not only with the people that grow our food, but also the philosophies and the hearts that are integral. Part to the to this virtuous cycle of soil to city. Yeah, I love I love that we're doing this segment now. In
0: particular, um, we had just came off of a two part series on uh labor um issues in the food system and and our last episode was focusing on labor issues for farmers and farm owners um so i love that we get to um kind of hear more directly from the farmers which we're going to play clips from the conference um in a little bit so we can um you know get that experience but it's i'm excited i'm very excited to to have the content on the show today um, you had Zach Wolf. speaking of farmers, uh, as the keynote speaker. Can you tell us, uh, can you tell, you know, for those of us, the listeners, um, who Zach is and how you decided to um, ask him to be the keynote?
4: Sure. Um, so Zach was the director of the Growing Farmer Initiative at Stone Barn Center, which um As most people know, Stone Barns, they are the farm that is connected to Blue Hill Restaurant, or some might say Blue Hill is the restaurant connected to Stone (laughs) Barns Center. And he's currently the head farmer at Locust on Hudson, um, which grows food for the standard hotel restaurants. And he's also growing salad mixes for our CSA um, through his new farm project. And he also consults nationally on a farm design uh, with Nelson Bird Woltz. And I actually had met Zach at a conference at Hawthorne Valley and I think anyone who knows Zach and met him or have heard him talk um, he's a very captivating individual and a very innovative farmer.
0: Um, yeah absolutely okay so I think uh, I want to let's we can we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the the clip that we chose to share. But he in his keynote, which we will have available on Eating Matters um, homepage as well, you can listen to the whole keynote. Um, but there were a, a few key themes that he hit on, um, including the importance for communication and collaboration and. Um, and j- overall, it sounded like uh, mindfulness in in his approach to agriculture, which we can um, talk a little bit more in a minute. Um, but for now, let's hear Zach talk about his experience um, in consulting. Yeah, let's see what he has to say.
5: As a farm consultant working for uh, with Nelson Birdwaltz around the U.S., doing design work, integrating with conservationists, landowners. Uh, nonprofits, all of these different stakeholders land use attorneys trying to create designs basically for farms so in a lot of ways that's like that's like an ideal situation that's like a blank slate someone said okay here's a piece of land here's a bunch of money here's a bunch of expertise here are the people to perform let's make this thing happen let's make this thing work And more often than not, those projects fail not because of lack of any of those things, but because the communication breaks down. Because even though you have all of these experts in their heads focused on their bands of expertise, finding overlap, that's not enough for true collaboration to happen. And that's what I'm trying to get at, is what are the sources of collaboration? How do we actually collaborate with each other? How do we actually listen to each other's stories in a way that's effective and meaningful and can create change in the world? And what I found through that experience is that the communication that was happening was good, but unless it was communication around compassion and empathy, it was coming way short of what we needed to do as a group. And I think that that's why I'm excited by projects like this, or any attempt to try to think outside the modern food system confines is because we do need whole new ways of collaborating, whole new ways of thinking with each other as groups and listening to each other with compassion and with empathy outside of the confines of our own paradigms and our own lenses.
0: Okay. Um, I heard I heard uh, words like compassion and empathy and it made me wonder for a minute if I was like back in my yoga teacher training session.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, a, I love um, it. Don't yeah. get me wrong. There's definitely a, a wonderful um, sort of hippie but authentic vibe to a lot of stuff that Zach talks about, which I think is why he really connects with people is that he's talking he's just giving words to something that we already know. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think we're so overly marketed to right now. There's so much information out there that we don't know what's really true that we have to really look, and especially in food right now, food's very popular. So I think we have to look at food in the way that we originally fell in love with it, which is the traditions behind food and cooking together and sharing a harvest together. And I think with collaborations, it's really important because, you know, like, Within the landscape of food, um, I think there's a lot of possibilities, but I don't know if people feel competitive, but like as a, as a business, it's easy to view your competitors as your competitors versus mm-hmm. your collaborators, but I think that if you can be a little more compassionate and empathetic, um, be more intuitive, you can kind of like let your guard down and really see how you can work together with someone else rather than feel threatened by them. And I think that's this really essential... The reason why I, I think that's important to th- the work that Local Roots does is that we're trying to build a community, like a really small town vibe in New York City, mm-hmm. which is really, really difficult. Um, the city's really crazy, and people always have their guards up. Um, but we're, you know, our CSA pickups are like a, a place for people to meet their neighbors that maybe they wouldn't know what to talk to them about but Mm -hmm. this is a place where they can swap a recipe and really talk about like what they cooked or some childhood dish that they remember from this from this produce we're offering to them, right? So you're building communities by bringing people together
0: mm-hmm. over this this shared interest, and also, I think that's a really important point um, that you say about you know the need to kind of collaborate. Like there there is the food space, um, especially the food startup space, um, is fairly crowded right now, and the, the reality is, um, you know, there there is a lot of competition. But maybe we should take another approach to how we view. Um, this competition because if we collaborate, if we work together, we can go a lot further faster. and let's be honest, especially when we talk about the local food system and getting local food to or um, uh, to people in New York City, there are a lot of people here that still, don't take advantage of things like their farmers markets and CSAs and um, there's there's just so much so many more people who could be uh, supporting the, the local economy so we should work together
4: I feel really good about that <laughs> and I, I think that um, I'm not sure if we're going to get into this later but someone had brought up at one of our later workshops this it, there's a real need for different industries or institutions to be involved in this. You know, there's a lot of responsibility upon a consumer to make the right food choice, Mm -hmm. um, but institutions have a huge buying power. Yeah, So try to, maybe they can partner up more with smaller businesses um, to really... In, like really increase the support we can give to our local food system. In terms of yeah buying local mm-hmm.
0: institutions, absolutely. Um, I'm a little bit obsessed with institutional purchasing, so that's something that we can definitely continue um, offline or on another show. Um, but right now, we're going to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors, but when we get back, we are going to hear a little bit more from the conference participants and farmers about what their vision for a healthy food system is. Stay tuned. Um, Yeah.
1: Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing is a celebration of good food and beverages in the newly restored Barn Loft event venue at Nettle Meadow Farm in Thurman, New York. On Saturday, June 18th, come sample and savor, then buy your favorite cheeses and beverages to take home. Nettle Meadow cheeses have been praised highly in national media and have won prestigious awards from the American Cheese Society. Taste samples of goat and sheep cheeses paired with an array of local regional wines, beers, and ciders. You'll never forget your first sample of rich, creamy kunik, Nettle Meadows' trademark cheese. In Esquire, our very own Anne Saxelby said, kunik, it may very well be the sexiest cheese in the USA. Nettle Meadow Farm is a goat and sheep dairy and cheese company in Thurman, New York, just below Crane Mountain in the Adirondacks between Gore Mountain, North Creek, and Warrensburg. It's owned and operated by Lorraine Limbiase and Sheila Flanagan. Both have a great love of animals, artisan cheese, and the unique challenges of farm life. Nettle Meadow Farm was originally founded in 1990 and it's the home of over 300 goats, dozens of sheep, and a variety of farm sanctuary animals. Again, the cheese and spirits pairing is Saturday, June 18th. For more information and tickets, visit That's Nettle Meadow Cheese and Spirits.com. That's N E T T L E, Meadow Cheese and Spirits.com.
0: And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Wen Jay Yang from local Roots NYC about the fifth annual Good Festival that took place this past weekend. Uh, Wen-jae, you asked all participants to respond to what their vision for a healthy food system is. Um, and in a minute, we're going to hear from the farmers. Uh, we have some, some f- clips from the farmers. But right now, I'm curious if you could um, sort of summarize or, or give us a few points that um, you heard from audience members that really surprised or resonated with you.
4: Um, you know, there are two common things um, that I heard from various people. Um, one is food access. Um, so making it affordable, but in addition, not just affordable, but having people under- understand and be able to spend the amount of money that food should truly be valued at. Um, I think also understanding what are the hidden costs when growing sustainably? Mm-hmm. Why is it more money? And Why is it harder to get? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think also just... Um, being able to navigate all these different choices we have—it's um, really complicated. Um, reading labels, um, so I think um, having easier education and communication about our food choices and um, food access. Yeah, and and having the co- the food reflect its the cost it's, of the food reflect yeah. its true value. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, All right. So now we're going to hear a few clips from five different farmers who were in attendance at this conference. Um, Are all of them local roots producers?
4: Um, I think all of them except for uh, two of them, which were... Shafali and Paul, who I met at a conference, but everyone else here are local roots farmers.
0: Okay. Um, And then each farmer was asked to share their philosophy on farming, as well as their vision for the future of the good food movement. Let's hear what they have to say.
6: doesn't fit. Okay. Um, So my name is Travis Jones. Um, I farm uh, with my family's farm, Blooming Hill Farm, and uh, this is our our first... uh, going to be our first season doing local roots um so uh farm philosophy um i guess i don't know if it's really a philosophy but i like to you know think of the farm as like a giant machine uh both uh, for growing vegetables but it's also uh, you know an, an economic organism and trying to make that work is uh is half the job um you know like Sam said we were talking before people near us really you know they don't buy a lot of our own produce we're we're bringing a lot of stuff to the city and uh just expanding um the local food movement to the super super local like in our town having people buy stuff is uh you know that's a challenge it's a huge challenge and um you know and also bring it to more people in the city there's you know 8 million people in New York City and I'm sure that nowhere near you know, even half of them are, are getting something like a CSA or local roots or or shopping at the farmer's market there's huge uh, you know, huge untapped potential just uh, you know, yeah what do you see where do you see we're always looking for new new ways to get food out to people we sell to a lot of uh, a lot of restaurants but I feel like uh, getting a our food directly to people uh, in any way we can. We've done a lot of different things. We've done uh, some of the online farmers markets. I remember someone was mentioning those. Uh, we're trying another one where we uh, ma- they are subsidizing U.S. or UPS mailing directly to uh, to people who buy online. Um, just new ways of getting food out there. Uh, it it's always you know for us since we don't really sell. To large distributors, um, you know you want to as get as quickly to the customer as possible with uh, the smallest number of jumps, so one jump is great, zero jumps is even better the farmers' markets and and such, but uh, there's always problems with any distribution model yeah.
3: hi i'm Valita Durkin. I also farm at Blooming Hill farm. Um uh, I guess my farmer philosophy would be. Well, one thing that I think is important is like respect, respect for the land, respect for the people that are working for us, um respect for the customers um, uh i I hope that in the future it will be easy for everyone to get to have access to the food and uh, we'll never be like oh we don't have an we don't have anyone to sell to, which we've had that happen to us before where we have too much product and you know just no one to sell it to. <laughs> So, yeah, that's it.
7: My name is Paul Taylor. I uh work at a farm in New Hampshire called brookford farm um, and my philosophy um for food and farming is that food represents life, energy, compassion, charity, cultural identity, humanity, and our effect on nature um and is therefore a lifestyle. I know that's. A lot, but I think food is a very important. It, it represents a lot. It's it's integral to to us, and um, the next phase of food, I think, needs to incorporate um, conscientious food choices into our lifestyles. And I think the main places where I see that happening are in education, um, fitness, charity work and our, our national security and sense of patriotism as a country, um, creating a resilient food network.
2: Hi, my name, I'll, I'll stand. How about that? Great. Uh, my name's Sam Moll. I work for Taproot Farm. So I don't consider myself a farmer. I don't own the farm. I don't have debt to pay for the land and the equipment. But I'm part of the farm crew that makes that brings the vegetables to the city. Um, and I would say my farm philosophy is growing real food as a solution for a healthy and happy community. Um, and making that possible. It's a lot of work. And how I feel that we make that sustainable for us is by celebrating the harvest, celebrating the abundance of the season by by just eating together. I think the consuming of what we produce is, is a really big, Big aspect of of farming. I where like my passion is is food access. Um, When like hmm, the food that we are growing is not being purchased by many people in my economic bracket, and that is something that's a that's a challenge for me, and that really needs to be addressed. Um, So how we our costs are based on the true cost of producing the food and um, paying living wages to, to those producing it, um, which isn't affordable to a lot of people. Um, so I feel in the future we need, that needs to be addressed. Um, locally, a way that we're doing that is in Pennsylvania, the state allocated a million dollars for food banks to buy surplus food. So Taproot Farm is being paid by our food bank to donate surplus food. Um, which is a huge step in the right direction, I feel.
8: My name is Shefale. Um So I actually have a cut flower and herb operations. Um, I do it because I love growing cut flowers and herbs and working with them. But part of the reason is because I want to expand our understanding of what consumption means beyond just vegetables. Um, and part of farming for me is that it's a space where I can translate my deepest values action and so a lot of how I farm is uh, inspired by that and there's this um, and, and you know it's a lot of the values that I try I want to get back to for myself just to become a better person respect humility generosity um, integrity hard work um, there's this yogic, there's a saying in yogic philosophy in Sanskrit it's theorem sukham which means discipline and joy and so it's about the symbiosis of these opposing forces that create balance and so for me with farming it's i tr- i strive to achieve this balance of presence with productivity because I want this ecosystem to be both viable, but also have a lot of vitality in it. Um, And in terms of where I'd like to see our local food system go is a focus on the quality and the well-being of the relationships within the system driving the rest of our concerns. Because I think once we start there and infuse those connections with some of these deeper values that we're trying to get together as a society, um, I think it'll take care of all the other problems that we want to face too, like social justice issues, inequity, access, all of that.
0: Okay. That wraps it up for our um, the farmer vignettes. A lot of enlightened farmers in that room. Mm-hmm. Very proud of them. Yeah, <laughs> so proud pretty of amazing. Them. Um, okay, so we heard like I I feel inspired. We heard these awesome clips um, from the farmers about what their vision is for the future of a good food system, and we heard some a summary of kind of what participants are thinking. What's next? Tell me what are, what are some action steps that you guys
4: like maybe came out of this gathering? So I uh, why. Uh, I 100% believe that every individual can have a very meaningful impact on our system. Mm -hmm. So um, I think even small things like telling a friend about local food, talking about something you just learned in this podcast or something else from Heritage Radio. um, Something really important is share your skills. We talk so much about skill sharing at this conference. I mean, even if it's photography to document the farm, marketing, accounting, pretty much anything Mm -hmm. is very, very beneficial to small businesses like ourselves and also farmers. Um, If you work at a large institution, help us connect them with farmers um, and maybe ask restaurants that don't source locally yet to see if they can do that. Um, And I think that... um, when you're buying food, this is something really important to me. When you're buying food, just take an extra five or ten seconds and think about why am I buying this? Why am I purchasing something if it is local and organic? Why am I purchasing this? Because not every vegetable is grown the same, and not everything lo- labeled local and organic is the same. So maybe just trying to figure out like what where your values lie. And the most obvious thing, the most important thing is buying local that money, unfortunately, money drives this world. But you know, like it, it's what helps support and grow this system. Um, so if it's either going to the farmers market in your neighborhood, the co-op, or you know, joining a CSA, hint, hint, our <laughs> summer CSA orders uh, are really are happening right now. Uh, they're due in two days on Friday. So if you live in a neighborhood in Brooklyn or lower Manhattan, hit us up localrootsnyc.org. Um, But seriously, that is the, that's the most important thing. So be a conscious
0: and a curious consumer and find ways, creative ways of collaboration. Mm -hmm. I love it. And... And support Local Roots uh, NYC. Yeah. <laughs> most important. <laughs> All right, and listen to Heritage Radio. Yep. <laughs> two most important things you'll ever do your whole life, those two things. Absolutely. All right. You heard it here, folks. Okay. I'm going to leave it here um, for our coverage of the uh, Good Festival. Wenjay, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank
4: you so much. This is really inspiring <laughs> and fun. Thank you.
0: Okay, folks, do you hear that sound? (laughs) Yup, that's right. It's time for a new segment, the Startup of the Week, where we feature an innovative and exciting new food organization or company at the end of each episode. With that, I'm pleased to introduce Leo Pollack, founder of the Rhode Island based company Compost Plant, which is the first full service composter in the state. Leo, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks, Jenna. Great to be on.
0: I'm so excited to have you on. Can you uh, start by, by telling me, what, what is a full-service composter? What does this entail?
3: Yep, so when you usually think about composters, you know, usually it would be a farm or a business, but they're really just doing the processing piece. So They're processing food waste and, and leaf and garden waste into soil. Mm-hmm. But we want to actually do everything. We want to do um, food waste collections with institutions, restaurants, um, process ourselves and essentially sell compost and soil products to consumers and for kind of large-scale projects as well.
0: Uh, wow. That seems that seems like an ambitious model.
3: <laughs> that's, that's what we're going for. It's sort of the, the not things you usually do together, sort of vertical integration and, and the waste industry.
0: And how did you get into this business?
3: Yeah, so I, I, um, I've been in Providence for about 10 years. I worked for an urban agriculture organization, essentially teaching people how to grow food in the city, mm-hmm. and really started to recognize that um, we, we had a lot of difficulty sourcing kind of the high-quality, high-nutrient compost that we needed to sustain home gardens, community gardens, um, and also recognize that we had this waste problem. Rhode Island has one central landfill um, it's projected to have about 25 years of life, and and um, there's very little composting infrastructure in the state. So, we sort of saw this as a way of kind of closing the loop. How do we start to get large volumes of food waste out of going to the landfill and cycle it back, all those nutrients, all those vitamins and minerals back into soil to, to help people grow food?
0: Can you um, give us a quick overview on the importance of composting? Kind of what are the benefits of uh, using compost and, and of uh, taking? Food waste out of landfills.
3: Absolutely. So, I mean, um, landfills. A lot of people don't know this. Are 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 one of the biggest sources of methane. Um, and methane is produced when things like food waste um, are in anaerobic conditions. So, when they're when they're buried and pressed down, there's no oxygen, and so bacteria will then produce methane as a byproduct. Um, and you know, methane is a serious greenhouse gas. Um, so by you know, sort of getting that food waste, diverting it
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, through an aerobic process like composting. So, getting the right mix, having the right oxygen. Um, there's no methane produced, and you get all those nutrients cycled back in, and they're they're in a stable form in soil that ends is, av- is available to plants. So, you know, the benefits of using compost are, and a number of them. Not only is it sort of a slow release of nutrients, but you're actually building the structure of soil, so um, your, your plants are less likely to have diseases, um, your, your soil will hold water better, so in the middle of summer you won't need a water as often, um, and it's really providing kind of all this bacteria, all this fungi, sort of this whole soil life that, that are really going to help sustain plants and keep kind of um, the root structure of your plants really healthy as well.
0: Um, so you mentioned that in about 25 years, the state's only landfill will reach full capacity. Uh, what then? <laughs> I mean, it's is great, a, <laughs>
3: a million dollar question? Um, is that it's, terrifying it's kind, for
4: people? I mean,
3: I, I I I'm actually sometimes amazed that it's not more terrifying Right. because uh, I hear that. And I think, wow, that is that's something we that's a problem really need to start planning for now. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it fits that you're seeing this kind of the awareness around food waste. Um, you know, the EPA has really taken this on, the USDA. Um, and and so I do think it's becoming more of, of sort of in people's consciousness.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But, um, you know, I would say kind of the awareness around composting is sort of where recycling was, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. Um, right. For some people it, it made sense, and for some people it's sort of like, why do we need to do that? You know, we we have infinite space to to continue to throw things away. Um, right. And so we look at it really as like, how do we change the perspective on thinking of food waste as not waste, but as this resource that if, if diverted and separated properly can really be turned into something that has a real value.
0: That has a real value and that is really needed in terms of, uh, you know, for the health and continuation of our ecosystem, right? Our soil.
3: Totally. Um, and I think that, you know, Providence is a, is, is a is an urban city rhode island is really kind of an urban suburban state there's no real rural areas Mm -hmm. um and so um a lot of the the food production here whether it's you know home or community garden it's fairly small scale and it's people growing food pretty intensively and so you know i see compost as one of those things that it's really a needed resource that if you're going to grow food in that way um and you're kind of growing food, and that's pulling nutrients out of the soil, you really have to have a way, an input that's sustainable, that's going to continue to literally sustain that production. Um, and that's the opportunity we're really seeing.
0: Right. Um, okay, so are there any sort of uh, regulations or policies that are supporting the work that you're doing right now, or are you just sort of going it alone?
3: <laughs> we, we, it's, it's interesting. We're, um, we're seeing, so Rhode Island was the fourth state in New England um to pass sort of what's basically called a food waste ban.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um so so it started with kind of the largest generators, so hospitals, universities, but it's sort of mandated that starting in January of this year, um any business or institution that produces over two tons of food waste a week, if there's a facility within fifteen miles of that location, is is mandated to start diverting it from the landfill. Um and so Vermont was the first to pass it. Uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut. I think in 2013, Rhode Island passed it in 2014. And just took effect. So that's one of those ones that I think really kind of changed the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that makes sense. That's the place to start. That you know, especially universities, hospitals,
0: you know, corporate campuses,
3: any institutions. Like yeah. you know, to me, it's almost sort of inexcusable that they wouldn't be kind of the lead on it. And then the idea that it'll eventually start to trickle down. You know, to individual restaurants or or smaller coffee shops, places like that.
0: Um, okay, here is the. This is going to be. Oh, by the way, yes, totally. A he- on institutions. We just had a conversation about the. Um, you know, brief conversation about the the kind of the power of institutional purchasing and that is the same uh, for food waste and diverting food waste from the landfill to your point. So um, it seems like that is the, the obvious intervention point for so many of these uh, food policy initiatives. Um, Okay. One final question. This is the most important question for you. How can, how can I get some of the Rhode Island's compost plant, compost, for my community garden in Brooklyn, please tell me there's a way.
3: It's <laughs> so great. So, um, so right now we we work with a farm that does processing, and we're going to be opening our own facility starting this fall. Okay. Um, and we're we're looking to launch a product line called Roadie Gold that'll be in a bag form, um, a, a straight original gold compost mix, mm-hmm. a Potter's Pleasure mix, and then a Grow Master mix. Um, So keep your eyes out for that, and we would love to get a distribution chain that goes straight down to Brooklyn.
0: Absolutely. Okay, and so um, where can we, for updates, where can we go? To your website?
3: So check out compostplant.com, or um, we're also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever social media platform suits your fancy.
0: (laughs) All right. Great. I'm going to have to leave it there for today, but Leo, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Well, thanks. Thanks for talking waste.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, thank you so much to Wen, Wen Jay Yang and Leo Pollock for coming on the show and to our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with the help from the brilliant Taylor Lanzett and Austin Bernarski. Show music is by Tim Archer and our engineer is David Tedeshore. All episodes of Eating Matters are available, of course, on Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Uh, like share follow posts to us on facebook and find us on twitter at eatmattershrn i'm jenna liute and thank you for listening
1: thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website